Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast for teens and for parents of teens, a podcast to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum with thoughts, ideas, principles, stories, and questions all geared towards helping teenagers better follow Christ through their teenage years. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of the Come Follow Me podcast for teens. I'm your host, Josh Downs, and today we're going to be taking a look at the book of Hebrews chapters 1 through 6 with the theme, Jesus Christ, the author of salvation. One of the things that I used to love to do in my classes is whenever we'd study the significance of a name, I would pull up a website, typically of baby names, and where all you had to do was enter a name and it would pull up the meaning behind the name. Because Yes, names by themselves are great, but everybody wants to know that their name means something or to find out what the meaning of their name is. And I'd have a lot of fun with students as we'd enter their name and find out all kinds of different things that they most likely didn't know that had any connection with their name whatsoever. And some of the meanings behind the names were pretty profound and insignificant. I could tell that this particular student was grateful to understand that about their name. While others who discovered the meaning behind their names were things like the tiller of the ground or he that has a large nose <laughs> weren't so grateful for that meaning behind their name. But I use that as just kind of an attention activity because often when you go into the scriptures, one of the things that is most valuable to look for are the different names by which Christ is known by. Because each of those names has meaning. And as you go through the chapters this week, that's one of the things I would invite you to look for are different names that the Savior is referred to. Paul is really good at coming up with names for the Savior that are deep and meaningful and teach a lot about who he is. It's fun to look for those names all throughout the scripture, but there are several in here that I would invite you to look for that can add deeper meaning to your understanding of Christ and his role in your life and my life and really in the world. And one of those terms is the theme of the study this week, the author of eternal salvation. That is a name that Christ is known by, that Paul gives him here in these verses that just says so much about who he is. I've always loved the idea of Christ being the author of my story, of my life story. And that's one of the messages that I often try to share with young people is one of the most important things we can learn to do in our life is to hand over the pen to our life story to him, to trust him to write it for us instead of us trying to often force it the way that we think it should go, to allow him to direct it in the way that he knows it is meant to go and that will be best for us. He is the author of eternal salvation, and therefore we should allow him to be the author of our life story. Now, the background for these chapters that we'll be going through today is that each of us has to give up something in order to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bad habits, incorrect beliefs, unwholesome associations, or something else. For Gentiles in the early Christian church, conversion often meant abandoning false gods. For the Hebrews, or Jews, Conversion proved to be, if not more difficult, a little more complicated. After all, their cherished beliefs and traditions were rooted in the worship of the true God and the teachings of his prophets, extending back thousands of years. Yet, the apostles taught that the law of Moses had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and that a higher law was now the standard for believers. Would accepting Christianity mean that the Hebrews must give up their earlier beliefs in history? 
The epistle to the Hebrews sought to help settle such questions by teaching that the law of Moses, the prophets, the ordinances are all important, but Jesus Christ is greater. In fact, all these things point to and testify of Christ as the Son of God and the promised Messiah that the Jews had been waiting for. Conversion in those early days and today means making Jesus Christ the center of our worship and our lives. It means holding fast to truth and letting go of that which distracts us from Him. For He is the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. There's no question that accepting the gospel and following Christ means change. That's been one of the themes of Come Follow Me and of all of the episodes I know that I have been doing and focusing on. And it reminds me of one quote in particular that has always impacted me. Ever since I heard it, I think it was from Elder Chad Wilkinson, who once said that God loves us just the way that we are, but he also loves us too much to leave us that way. Make no mistake about it. As President Benson said, when you or I choose Christ, we choose to be changed. And I think that you'll see that several of the principles that I'm going to focus on this week are principles that are centered on bringing about that change in us, which oftentimes can be difficult and painful. As Elder Scott once referenced, that the change that God has in mind for us is going to be painful, and it requires a lot of stretching in order to get us from where we are to where He knows we can be, which often involves a great deal of pain. And I think you'll see that not only in this episode and the principles we'll look at today, but really throughout these chapters and throughout the book of Hebrews, as, well, the Hebrews are going through some painful transition. They are learning to let go of things they've been holding on to for a long time that are steeped in tradition and that they had been doing for generations in order to better move forward and live the higher law that had now been given to them through Christ. And the first principle I want to address in this week's episode is that, yes, although there is going to be a lot of pain, and this change is painful at times, is to never, ever forget that God knows how we feel. In fact, I'm sure at some point in your life, whenever you were going through something particularly difficult, you've had somebody say this phrase to you in an effort to probably try to comfort you in what you're going through. And the phrase is, I know how you feel. But most of the time, that phrase doesn't help because most of the time, they really don't know how you feel. They haven't fully gone through what you've gone through. I know in going through my divorce, which was very painful for me, I had so many people try to offer words of comfort, but none of them really helped. Ironically, those that were able to really help me and really the only ones that were really able to help me and that I wanted to talk to for that matter were those that had gone through divorce because I knew that they got it. I knew that they knew what I was feeling and what I was going through. And so whatever counsel or advice or comforting words they might have, I, they had deeper meaning and made a deeper impact as I was going through it. Well, one of the great principles that we need to always remember is that God knows you, that he knows how you feel. He knows what you're going through. He knows your pain. And why? Well, Paul reminds us why in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, when he says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. In other words, he went through everything that he went through, 
so that he would know what you are going through and I am going through and how to best help us so he could have empathy and an understanding and a knowledge of everything that would be helpful for him to know in order to best help us. Other Neil A. Maxwell once said, I testify to you that God has known you individually for a long, long time. He has loved you for a long, long time. He not only knows the names of all the stars, he knows your name and your heartaches and your joys. Many prophets have pointed out that not only has Christ taken upon him our sins, but he's taken upon him our sicknesses, our infirmities, our weaknesses, our pains, and our sufferings, all so that he could best know how to help us. I came across a rather touching story and experience written by James G. Stokes just on the church's website about how he came to know and understand that Christ knew him and knew his pain. Of this experience, he wrote, I sighed heavily but quietly in the darkness of my hospital room. I felt frustrated, but I didn't want to disturb my mother asleep on the couch not far from my bed. I was recovering from my fourth unexpected surgery in three weeks and with another operation planned in two months during the summer. The latter operation, we had been told, would last about five hours with four to six weeks afterward for recovery in the hospital. He said, I was born in 1986, and soon after birth, I was diagnosed with cerebral palsy, secondary to congenial hydrocephalus. Hydrocephalus, called water on the brain, is a condition in which an individual has either too much or too little cerebral spinal fluid. In my now 28 years of life, I have had more than 50 surgical procedures for these conditions. Can you imagine 50 surgical procedures? On what felt like the darkest and most dismal night I had ever faced, which I can only imagine how many of those he probably had, he said, I forgot the many blessings that I had received from the Lord. I thought only of the sorry state of my life. My negativity engulfed me, and I began to doubt all that had been taught to me about my Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. A loving God, I rationalized, would not have left me alone to face this nightmarish reality. Worst of all, no one knew what I was going through. My family felt a portion, but they did not fully understand how painful my experiences had been. No one did. I was about to voice these thoughts in prayer when I heard my name. Through my anguish, I recognized the voice of the Spirit, carrying a message to my soul from my Savior, reminding me I was not alone. Jesus Christ knew what I was going through. He had felt my pain. As the message resonated with me, doubt was replaced by shame. In my self-pity, I had forgotten about Jesus Christ. I had been taught much about how the Savior suffered for our sins. But I had forgotten that in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross, the Lord had also borne my grief and carried my pain. This reminder forever changed the way that I look at the atonement of Jesus Christ. Inwardly, I resolved that I would never again forget. This reminder would govern my thoughts, my words, and deeds in this life and in the life to come. This change in perspective also brought a change in attitude. Remembering that I am not alone, I have been more positive about my situation. I believe that this has allowed me to recover more quickly from the surgeries. It also helped me to come through the extensive surgery in the summer within three hours and cut my hospital stay, originally projected to be four to six weeks, to only three weeks. 
My disabilities and the trials that accompany them have not been easy to bear, but because I know that my Savior completely understands what I am going through, even if no one else does, I know that He will always be there for me. All I have to do is drop my burdens at His feet and bear a song away. I will forever be grateful to a Savior who not only carried my sins, sorrows, and afflictions, but also took the time to remind me that He has done so. I love that story and I love that thought. And young people, I think that is something that every single one of you, all of us for that matter, needs to remember and understand. When you go through hard things, even though you feel that you're alone, you are not alone in going through them because someone has already gone through them for you. And that someone is Christ. He knows who you are, but he also knows your pain and he knows your suffering. And so he has incredible amounts of love, of empathy, and of a willingness to help and to comfort, to guide and direct and support you as you go through them. Never, ever forget that. A couple questions for you to consider as you consider this principle from Paul. One, how is it helpful to, to know that not only has the Savior taken upon him your sins, but that he's also taken upon him your pain and your sorrows and your sicknesses? And what does this say about his feelings for you? personally, that he would be willing to do that for you personally. And because he has been through what you have and knows how it feels, how does that allow him to be able to better help you? Why is it so important to have someone understand what it is that we're going through? How can this knowledge help you when you're going through something hard? How can it help you to change your attitude about the pain that you're experiencing? And finally, how can our pain develop, help us to develop greater appreciation for what the Savior went through for us? I love President Nilsson's comment from this last general conference about, although he's been in incredible pain from his back and the injury that he sustained, that he has allowed that pain to help him appreciate the pain that the Savior went through even more than he already did. And I know we can do the same with ours. Principle two. Sometimes, one of the greatest sources of pain that we'll experience in mortality is the pain that comes from sin and poor choices and the consequences that sometimes they bring. We need to feel safe despite our sins and our weaknesses to approach God for help. And these next few verses should help us to feel more safe in approaching God when we have done something wrong and when we're experiencing pain from poor choices and from sin. In chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, that's where I'd like to, to go for this principle. Paul reminds us of the opportunity and the safety that we have and can experience in approaching God's throne to ask for help, especially when it comes to sin and our weakness and how we can have confidence to do so. In verse 15, he says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. In other words, again referencing he knows our weaknesses. But was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So not only does he know, again, our weaknesses, but he knows what it feels like to be tempted. He is the only one that knows fully what it means to be tempted. Because he is the only one that has resisted all temptation. I think it was C.S. Lewis that 
he kind of taught this in a very powerful way when he said something along the lines that there's kind of a silly notion out there that an evil man or a wicked man must be the one that knows fully what temptation feels like. But he said that's really not the case because anyone that commits sin has given in to temptation. They have not resisted it to its fullest amount. And he references it being like walking against the wind. We don't know the strength of a wind until we have fought against it fully. If we lay down, we'll never fully understand the strength of the wind had we continue to press forward it. And because of that, Christ is the only one that fully understands temptation because he never gave in to it. Which means he knows what it feels like. He knows how hard it is. He knows how hard it is to resist because he resisted it fully. In verse 16, Paul mentions, Therefore, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Christ knows fully how powerful and difficult temptation is, again, it is created within him greater empathy for us. And Paul is pointing out that because of all of this, we can have confidence in approaching God for help because he understands better than anyone. Not only what our our sicknesses and infirmities and pain feels like, but he knows what temptation feels like. And he knows the pain associated with sin. And if there's anything he wants to help heal and cure within us, it's the pain from sin. One of the most common phrases in all of Scripture is just simply, ask and ye shall receive. I think there's a reason for that. God wants us to feel comfortable and safe coming to him. To ask not only for help when going through something hard, but to also ask for forgiveness whenever we've made mistakes. One of the best talks that I've heard on this particular subject was from President Uchtdorf when in a talk titled, He Will Put You on Your Shoulder, on His Shoulders and Carry You Home. He talked about the amazingly beautiful town of Dresden in Germany that was completely, although once beautiful, was completely devastated and destroyed by World War II. Yet, years later, when he had the opportunity to return and revisit it, he noticed and saw that it was rebuilt just as beautiful as it once had been. And he used that metaphor as an analogy for what the Savior can do for us after we've been devastated and decimated by the the poor choices that we make and the sins that we so easily commit at times. In that talk, he said, It matters not how completely ruined our lives may seem. It matters not how scarlet our sins how deep our bitterness, how lonely or abandoned or broken our hearts may be. Even those who are without hope, who live in despair, or who have betrayed trust, surrendered their integrity, or turned away from God, can be rebuilt. Save those rare sons of perdition, there is no life so shattered that it cannot be restored. Isn't that beautiful? He said, The joyous news of the gospel is this, Because of the eternal plan of happiness provided by our loving Heavenly Father, And through the infinite sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we can not only be redeemed from our fallen state and restored to purity, but we can also transcend mortal imagination and become heirs of eternal life and partakers of God's indescribable glory. So, what must we do? Well, as Paul said, we need to have faith and confidence to approach the throne of God with boldness, knowing and trusting and believing that he will be accepting of us and give us the grace, the love, and the forgiveness that we need to overcome our sins and weaknesses. 
He said, his invitation is simple. Turn to me, come to me, draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. This is how we show him that we want to be rescued. It requires a little faith, but do not despair. If you cannot muster faith right now, President Uchtdorf says, just begin with hope. If you cannot say you know God is there, you can hope that he is. You can desire to believe, and that is enough to start. Then, acting on that hope, reach out to Heavenly Father, and God will extend his love toward you, and his work of rescue and transformation will begin. Over time, you will recognize his hand in your life. You will feel his love. And the desire to walk in his light and follow his way will grow with every step of faith you take. I can 100%, you guys, attest to that in my own life. I have had my own fair share of sins and my own struggles and my own weaknesses. And it was very common for me back when I was your age to not want to confront them, to not want to see them, to not want to admit that they were there, to often try to hide them because I was ashamed of them. That's Satan. Ever since the Garden of Eden, that's what he did. Was he got us to he wants to try to get us to, to hide our mistakes and hide our sins through shame. Paul is telling us here that we can approach God with confidence because he knows what temptation is like. He knows how powerful it is and he knows how easy it can be to give into it. Repentance is never an easy thing, but it's not really meant to because it requires us to be vulnerable with God through confession and through other things that are a part of it to help us really come out of hiding and to approach God in humility and in faith, trusting that we can receive forgiveness and the grace and power that we need to overcome those weaknesses that brought those sins about in the first place. I remember having my dad as a stake president. Trust me, that's not easy to have to go into your father to confess your sins or to tell him of the things that you've done wrong. Not to mention the pressure that I had to live up to that expectation that I felt was placed on me as a stake president son. The process of repentance was never easy. But approaching boldly the throne of God means approaching with confidence that he understands your struggle, that he understands your weakness, that he understands your pain and shortcomings, and that you can have confidence that you will find love, that you'll find power, and you'll find grace, everything you need to be forgiven, to change, and to improve. And that really is nothing to be scared of experiencing. The repentance process, young people, has been one of the greatest experiences of my life. Yes, those initial steps are hard, but oh, the peace and the joy that comes as you're able to push through those and really become vulnerable with God, showing Him that you've made a mistake, which every single one of us has. That is a part of this plan that we are all experiencing. Now, a couple key questions for you to consider on this principle. Number one, what does it mean to you to come boldly unto the throne of God and grace? Why is the Savior so merciful towards us, even though he was without sin? When is it that you have felt the Savior's grace and mercy the most in your life? And how has he been there for you when you needed him to be? What would you say to someone that was struggling, feeling good enough, to ask God for help? How would you encourage them to get past that, to be able to approach God with greater confidence? And how can this principle help us whenever we might need to talk to our bishop 
as a part of the repentance process. Now for the last principle, just one last thought. This one from chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. I encourage you to turn there and mark these. I think in these verses, Paul is trying to teach us another aspect of why life is hard sometimes and why we need to experience pain and why pain is a part of mortality. In verse 8, he says, Though he were a son, referencing Christ, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. One of the things that I think is worth noting and pointing out is how is it that we learn obedience and suffering? If Paul says that though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, somehow there must be an element of obedience that we learn through our suffering. Well, I want you to look at it like this. It's easy to obey God when what he asks is easy. The challenge for us and the challenge of true obedience comes when what he asks is hard. As an example, if he were to ask you to make a milkshake for yourself, (laughs) how hard would it be to be obedient to it? Wouldn't we have the same attitude as Nephi? I will go and do the things which you command, Father. Yeah, I'd be happy to make a milkshake. That sounds great. Well, What if he asked you to sacrifice your only son or to leave your home and travel into the wilderness or to face unemployment with faith or to face a health issue with patience or persecution and ridicule with grace? Now that might be a little harder to do, but also wouldn't it shape the obedience in you to become a little stronger? It's almost as Elder Holland taught that faith to be faith always is in crisis. It needs to be in crisis in order to be faith. Well, same with obedience. Obedience, in order to be obedience, needs to be hard, not easy. And there's often pain associated with it when it is. I remember reading a little bit of a story of a personal experience that Elder Harold B. Lee, former prophet of the church, experienced um, many years ago. In this article, the author writes, The elderly accomplished this monumental labor at a time of great personal sorrow. His own beloved family was struck by death when his wife was taken in September of 1962. And a few years later, while he was on an assignment in the Pacific, his daughter, Maureen, died suddenly at the age of 40. In his general conference address after the death of his daughter, he said, As I advance in years... I begin to understand in some small measure how the master must have felt in Gethsemane. In the loneliness of a distant hotel room 2,500 miles away, you too may one day cry out from the depths of your soul, Oh dear God, don't let her die. I need her. Her family needs her. But it was not to be. And Elder Lee reflected, God grant that you and I may learn obedience to God's will, if necessary, by the things which we suffer. These trials brought Elder Harold B. Lee closer to the Lord. Don't be afraid of the testing and trials of life, he taught at an area conference in Munich, Germany years later. Sometimes, he said, when you are going through the most severe tests, you will be nearer to God than you have any idea. I know 
from personal experience yet again, young people, that we learned some of the most important lessons that we came here to learn through our own suffering. Through that suffering, we develop empathy for others. We develop the ability to be more obedient to God's will and accepting of it. We learn patience. As Paul taught, tribulation worketh patience. (laughs) We all need more of that. It also gives us perspective. The Lord told the prophet Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail, if you remember, all these things, referencing his pain and his suffering, shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 10, there's a great verse that reads, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer, but be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. And finally, through our suffering and through pain, we develop love. Not only do we learn to appreciate the unconditional love that is given to us by the Savior through His sufferings, but we also experience and learn from the unconditional love of those who worry about us and care for us. Yes, life is going to be hard and there are going to be moments of pain, but that pain shapes us and fashions us in ways that could no other way be done. And now, with years removed from some of my most painful experiences, I come to look at those as some of the greatest gifts that God has given me because I've come to recognize that through those experiences, I have grown in ways that I could not have grown in any other way. And I've learned things that I couldn't learn in any other way. And I've developed characteristics such as empathy and such as compassion and faith and patience and perspective that I couldn't learn in any other way. And I'm confident if you allow again Christ to be the author and finisher of your story and to trust him with your pen and with your pain, that you too will see those things in a similar way one day. You won't always see him right away, that's for sure. But given enough time, the Lord just has a way of turning water into wine, of turning pain into hope, and turning sorrow to joy. Now, a few, couple key questions to end on from this particular principle. Number one, why do you think suffering, in your opinion, is a part of mortality? How do we learn obedience through the suffering and trials that we go through? How do our trials and suffering help us to become more perfect? And which trials in your life, now that enough time has passed, are you grateful for and why? And although I ask this next question in a general sense, I want to ask it in a personal sense. How have your trials specifically helped you specifically become more perfect than you were before? And why is it so important for you to remember these truths when going through hard things and suffering? And finally, how has your suffering helped you gain a greater appreciation for the Savior's suffering? Now, hopefully this has been helpful as always to you, that these principles are meaningful and impactful for you, and kind of set the tone and the stage for your study this week as you go through these chapters. There are so many more wonderful truths and doctrines and principles to all help us better come into Christ and face the challenges of mortality and be changed through the process. As always, please remember that that person is greatest and most blessed and joyful whose life most closely approaches the pattern of the Christ. This has nothing to do with earthly wealth, power, or prestige. 
The only true test of greatness, of blessedness, of joyfulness is how close a life can come to being like the Master Jesus Christ. He is the right way, the full truth, and the abundant life, and He invites us all to come follow me. So, as always, let's follow Him better this week and become a little better as we follow Him. Till next week, everyone, I'm Josh Downs, and you've been listening to Come Follow Me for Teens and for Parents of Teens.